You're listening to Phanalysis, a sci-fi and fantasy podcast. In this episode, we are talking about episode 312 of The Hundred Demons. I'm your host. My name is Chris. And my name is Dawson. And what are your first impressions of this episode, Dawson? Your general review, if you will. Yeah, I liked I liked the episode. It was like the episode before it, Nevermore. It was a very self-contained episode. And it riffed on some really classic storytelling structures. So this was the like the slasher story, which was interesting to me. It's interesting to me that they've done that twice in a row now. It's like it's almost like they're doing a weird sort of almost a kind of procedural feel with their serialized story, which is very strange to me because they did two bottle episodes like that in a row. It feels Mm -hmm. that way. I don't know if that's what they're trying to do, but that felt odd. And I don't. I don't love that structure. I'm not a, I'm not a procedural person. So like, I don't, I'm not a fan of the much more self-contained episodes. I would rather have the intense, deep serialized storytelling. So I'm, I'm a little bummed if that's the direction they're going. Like if they're structurally kind of moving this way instead, that'd be a little disappointing to me. But the episode itself, sort of on its own, forgetting all of that stuff was really great. I actually really, really enjoyed the episode. Do you think the writers are doing like genre bingo? It kind of feels that way because we had we had the intense like drama of the the airing of grievances right in Nevermore, and then um, now we have the slasher story, you know, the ghost the ghost story. Because yeah, I (laughs) I just kept getting Halloween episode vibes. Like it's a very special Halloween episode of the hundred. It does in April for some reason. (laughs) It does have that feeling, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, it literally starts off with a ghost story. Yes. Which was which was excellent, for the record. Miller <laughs> telling his ghost story tales was great. But yeah, I, I thought it was pretty good. I agree that I'm less invested in what's going on now than I was at the beginning of the season. But things have picked up from where we were a few episodes ago. So I'm like, I'm okay with it. I'm less interested than I was, but I'm more interested than I was a month ago. You know. Agreed. I'll take it. <laughs> I feel the same. Yeah. I was actually kind of amused with myself. It occurred to me that here we were so excited about what was going on in Polis and kind of didn't care about what was going on in Arcadia at the beginning of the season. And this episode was completely the opposite for me. I had a moment where I was like, oh, yeah, there was also a Polis (laughs) storyline as I was making the outline for this episode. And, you mean uh, when I when I added that section about the yes, it dawned on me that I hadn't left hadn't put it in the notes, and then I went to go put it in the notes, and you had already made a section for it. So thank you. You're welcome. When I looked at the notes, I was like, Chris, did you forget there was a? <laughs> I did for a second. Yeah, yeah. Before I rewatched. Yep. <laughs> Although I I remembered before I rewatched. To be fair. Um, but anyway, but then it occurred to me that really what it is, I just care about whatever Clark is doing wherever she is. Clark is the best the best piece of this story. I think we are in consensus. That's been our like the running theme of <laughs> everything we talk about. Yeah, yeah. I, which I think is fair, right? She's the main character we're supposed to care the most about Clark. Absolutely. Totally agree. I I have to say that they set up a lot of stuff in in early season 3 in Polis that they clearly never intended to continue with, and I'm really disappointed with that. It was like at at 307, when they killed off Lexa, they sort of tanked that storyline. And the problem was, I was really digging that storyline. The the Polis, Arcadia, 12 clans, politics, and they've taken a sharp left, and I'm, I'm so... Again, like, I enjoyed this episode, but like you, I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed early season three. Early season three had so many good pieces, and we have left all of that behind. That's a bit of a bummer. Well, what's so weird is for a second, it seemed like they were maybe going to continue with some of the grounder politics and and customs and all that sort of thing with Antari needing to go through the Ascension thing. Right. But then they didn't. Nope. And it seems like (laughs) it's just, it got shuffled to the side. Like it doesn't matter anymore. And yeah, that makes me sad. And completely sidelined this episode. Like it's not even really on the table anymore yeah as of this episode it's been pretty much completely wiped out which is a bit unfortunate in my opinion it's an odd choice to me but agreed again they didn't ask me so yeah same (laughs) they didn't ask me either (laughs) clearly they should have asked us like come on (laughs) i i 
you know, I will say, I've said it before, right? It feels like in a lot of areas there was a real misunderstanding about what made this show popular because it got a lot of traction in season two and then even more traction in early season three. And I feel like maybe they didn't quite understand that what people had come to, the pieces that people had come to enjoy about it, they've really kind of gotten rid of at this point. So it'll be interesting if they can keep their audience or win back their audience with these other storylines that they're pushing forward with instead. Of course, it's, you know, the irony that they had finished filming the season by the time season three got started. So, yeah, I mean, that's the (laughs) that's the danger of TV, right? Is right. You have to I'm by no means am I saying like these people are stupid. They didn't know what they were doing. It's this is it's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to know to really know based on like to know early enough because you are filming your next season when the other season is airing to know early enough that that these are the things your audience is really loving and enjoying right that's that's a hard that's a very hard thing to do every tv show has that problem just because of timing anyway let's talk about emerson versus clark because that was sort of the big the big thing of this episode and we talked before about how clark's choice of banishment for Emerson was sort of simultaneously an act of mercy and an act of vengeance. And so I think it's safe to say that we're not remotely surprised to see him come for Clark, right? Not at all. I mean, we all knew that he was going to come back, right? (laughs) I think so. I mean, the fact that he was out there and the fact that he was out there before and, and did the same thing, you know. Right, right. But then I just, I, I kind of keep coming back to this idea of like, well, what is the message here from this, right? Because they make the big deal about blood must not have blood. And that's what influences Clark's decision to let him live. And basically letting him live is a huge mistake, because now he's come back to kill not only Clark, but also a good chunk of the people that she still cares about. What's the message here, show? This this is a really interesting thing that has been going on a lot in season three, mm-hmm. I feel like. And I think it's that there's a lot of deferring deferring resolution on things. And that's causing some some frustration, I think, in the audience. Or not frustration, but more like people are like, what are you trying to say here? Right? Are are you saying that Blood Must Not Have Blood was a bad plan? Where I suspect, I don't know, maybe I have too much faith, but I suspect, I'm always a hopeful person, I suspect that the the direction they're going with this is that there will be an eventual sort of payoff of the storyline where this is, this is, Clark is in her darkest hour, right? Clark is doubting all of the work she did early on in the season from Blood Must Not Have Blood and Letting Emerson Go to like losing faith in her people and staying with the grounders in Polis. She, she's sort of facing her darkest hour where you doubt every decision you've, you've made before, even if they were the right decisions or good decisions. And my, my hope is that this is intended as a darkest hour. These things are intended as a darkest hour moment. It's the longest, darkest hour. (sighs) No, there's been a lot of deferring of resolution in this season. And that's, I just think there's just a major problem there. Because your audience is dissatisfied, so you haven't you haven't done it right. You haven't you've deferred too long. <laughs> because I, like you, am am sort of I'm not necessarily an inherently hopeful person, but I want to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I like that kind of story that that has that as the message, and so this like is Supergirl, <laughs> exactly, exactly Supergirl, and it's just it's been a hard season for me. <laughs> Like, the show is kind of difficult for me anyway, but I like it because it really has addressed that kind of inner moral struggle. And there's just, it, there's been a lot of difficulty and bloodshed and unpleasantness this season, uh, more than even past seasons, it feels like. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but. No, it it is true. There's been, it's been a steady downward spiral from 307 on. And the problem is there have been very few moments. In fact, I I can't think of There's been one moment of hope I can think of, and that was Octavia's We're Stronger Together mm-hmm. speech at the end of Nevermore. But that's just one bright spot in what has been a very long downward spiral. I would add Raven's general 
insane intelligence and and having a clue as to what the hell is going on. <laughs> I will add that Very as true. another bright spot of hope. For me. Very true. Very true. And I think at the end of this episode, Raven is a very, Raven is a beacon. You know, you really get that sense from her. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay Morgan is so good at doing that. She's got, she, I mean, girl smiles and it lights up the whole world. Like, <laughs> agreed. She has that thing, that bright light thing. Anyway, back to Emerson and Clark. Yeah. Sorry, we got derailed. <laughs> that was my, my fault. Addressing the big issues of the, of the show. Jeez, Chris. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Why you gotta do that? <laughs> I can't help it. It's just how my brain works. So where do we think Emerson got all that gear? Because he had a ton of stuff. He had like a, a giant meat hook or whatever that was, and gas mask and pink gas. Yeah, I suspect he went on a scavenger run. and Probably. Found some stuff. I thought it was really interesting and kind of cool that there were elements of grounder gear and elements of gear from the mountain Mm -hmm. in his setup and that was a really this episode is called demons and there's the beginning of the story where they're miller's telling the ghost story and the the lead-in obviously is that your demons always come back to to haunt you and i thought it was an interesting visual for them to like that the grounder gear and the gear of the mountain men really is a manifestation of of the various types of demons that that might manifest for these different these different people Right. And I think that was a very interesting visual choice. But I'm assuming he scavenged, scavenged, scavenged all of that stuff. <laughs> right. He's sort of like a, I don't know, grounder slash reaper slash gas mask things, which are, I think, all of the the various threats for the first couple of seasons. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I thought it was a nice touch having Clark see Aaron's name on the little carousel that was playing the creepy music. And then using that against Emerson when he's trying to kill her friends. Yeah. So very Clark. I was going to say, that's vintage Clark. That's some classic Clark right there. Clark, our master manipulator. One of my favorite things about her. Yeah. I also am just going to remind everybody that there was that great moment where Clark is like heading towards the creepy music and Monty goes, heading towards the creepy music is a bad idea. <laughs> Monty is me during every scary movie. <laughs> I thought Why would you go towards? <laughs> I start yelling at the TV, probably much to the annoyance of whoever is watching with me. Yeah. I just love that they, like, thank you. Like, some character somewhere should say that. <laughs> Haven't you ever seen a horror movie? Come on, guys. <laughs> exactly. So I'm glad Monty said it. Poor Monty. <laughs> yeah. I uh, really loved Emerson's death scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, as as I think we said back when we talked about, oh man, which episode was it? Was it Bitter Harvest? I don't know what you're thinking, so I with don't know. the last episode with Emerson and Clark. I think it was, yeah. I think it was Bitter Harvest. The last episode with Emerson and Clark, where Clark and Emerson have their confrontation in Polis, um, where Clark spares him. I said when I watched that, right? That was one of my favorite episodes. And I only liked the parts with Clark and Emerson, really. <laughs> the rest of it was like, eh, fine. But that stuff was so good that it it made the episode for me. And I still I still love these scenes between Emerson and Clark are so brutal. And so, in like, I mean, Toby Levins and, and Eliza Taylor, man, they, they go there, you know? Right. <laughs> they really go there. And, and that's amazing to watch and and terrifying and gut-wrenching and all these are the kinds of gut-wrenching things that i love and have loved about the show for so long right those gut-wrenching moments where you've made choices and they might be good and they might be bad but they have consequences and emerson is a manifestation of consequences just like clark is a manifestation of consequences for him right like he was part of the mountain and and draining grounders blood you know but I loved that the confrontation scene between them and Clark's Clark's desperation and and every every piece of that was really great. But my favorite is Emerson's death scene, which was so good because A, Lex is to the rescue, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was all I could think when I saw that scene. I'm pretty sure you weren't the only one thinking that. So I'm yeah. sure many other people thought that as well. <laughs> Even in death, she's gonna defend Clark. And then the actual like visuals of the way they played his his death at the hands of the chip was pretty cool. 
quite a brutal. I thought that was interesting to see the the chip burrowing to its usual space in the back of the neck because I don't know. I kind of wondered how that worked. <laughs> Apparently, just like that, which was scary <laughs> as hell. <laughs> it was. It's like that is unnerving. Yeah, it was incredibly unnerving, but but so good. And also, I think there's a desire to like think of the chip of of Ali 2.0 as kind of benevolent in some way because it's like you know we i don't i'm i do i don't know if other people do i'm assuming other people do kind of think of it as lexa right just like clark does and so there's you have this sort of sense of it being kind of benevolent in some way and to see that kind of like brutal like danger that it can also (laughs) present is pretty fascinating well it's like i knew she was gonna do that yeah they'd established it or or rather mentioned it again earlier in the episode that you know, this is what the chip does if you don't have the Nightblood. Yeah, they definitely... Lots of good foreshadowing on that one. So as as Emerson was wrestling Clark to the ground, I'm like, oh, Clark has a weapon. <laughs> she Here has it on comes. her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't mess with Clark. Alexa's gonna get you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so protective. It doesn't matter if Lexa's dead. She will f***ing climb out of her grave and kill you. <laughs> so then let's talk about... Because Emerson has held Clark's friends captive. Let's talk about the Harper, Miller, and Brian scenes. I am glad that the show didn't forget about them because it kind of felt last episode like they kind of forgot about them. Because <laughs> they, they were there at the beginning and then they left them and kind of didn't mention them again. And so at least this episode started off with them again. But But I mean, their scene was there mostly just to set up their abductions and the abductions that followed. So... That's true. But it's, I mean, I realize it's the danger of being a supporting character. I mean, they are supporting characters. I will say that what they represented thematically was really critical and important. The story that Miller tells, right, the the ghost story, was was immensely important, right? There were some incredibly tasty storytelling bits in that <laughs> story that I really, really loved. It's like the perfect setup. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's a beautiful setup. Well, and there was the, you know, it's a story about demons. <laughs> and then there's that line that Fidalgo and his hook and all of that, and the demons tell him that they'll leave him alone if he kills. And Brian replies, as demons do. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I just, I thought that was so good. Right. And if you, the major theme of this season has been death, right? You have one Hedda, you have the destruction of the mountain, you have the second destruction of the mountain. Of course, we've had a lot of major character death happen. The whole theme of the season has been death, and this story was was wrapped in that, right? So it'll be interesting to see thematically if, if any of that comes back. Just a side note, in the shot of Emerson walking down the hall when the pink gas is everywhere, he mm-hmm. has a hook on his belt. Yep. In case anyone didn't notice... Go back and watch. It was pretty funny. I laughed. (laughs) It's like one of those giant butcher meat hook things. Yeah. It's exactly what you imagine as like a hook in a horror story that Miller might tell around the campfire to scare the pants off of Harper. Yep. And Brian. And Brian. Which I thought that was cute. I thought it was it was nice to see them being kids, you know, and telling horror stories and Yeah, it is one of those moments, one of the rare moments on the show where you're like, Oh yeah, they're teenagers. (laughs) Yeah. That's sort of a creepy reminder when you think about everything that they've been through. Yep. A tiny little note for me. This may be weird. I don't know. I found it oddly heartwarming when Miller like goes off, right? And he's like, they think he's he's being weird. And there's the unnerving sound from outside. Yeah. And Harper <laughs> says something to Brian like, he's your boyfriend or something like that. I, that was weirdly heartwarming to me. Strangely, in television shows, you don't with... LGBT characters, you often don't get that sort of casual kind of referring to someone as your boyfriend or referring to someone as your girlfriend because there's usually drama around the relationship, right? So it's like, it gets very vague in terms of language. And that was, to me at least, that was just a nice, like, simple, Miller is his boyfriend and there's no reason he wouldn't refer to him that way. But I find in TV, we get weird about doing that for some reason. I'm not sure why. Because it is, I think, you know, I, I saw that you made this comment and I think what it is, she says it in a very offhand casual why wouldn't you say it that way kind of way yeah which does seem rare like now that i'm thinking about it yeah it doesn't happen a whole lot 
it's exactly the thing she would have said to a girl whose boyfriend was being stupid. <laughs> He's your boyfriend. <laughs> yep. It was that, like, that level of casualness, right? When people talk about normalizing LGBT relationships, that's, to me, that was very normalizing a gay relationship. Like, he's your boyfriend, and he's being dumb. Go deal with it. (laughs) Yeah. Side note about Brian. Do you find it odd how easily they've reincorporated him into the group, since he was one of Pike's (sighs) minions? It's a bit odd. But at the same time, I think he's a minor enough character that we didn't have a sense of him as being, as doing terrible things. So there's not a ton of need for a redemptive arc. And he kind of had a bit of a redemptive arc when he helped them get Kane and everybody out. Right. I, I generally agree with you. He was never shown as being a major player in Pike's posse, if you will. Right. Like he was there, but I don't know how much he necessarily participated. And the fact that he seemed so ready to switch sides when it came down to it, you know. I think there was a sense with him of really understanding that he didn't have another perspective, right? He was dedicated to Pike because Pike helped keep him alive on the ground when they landed in Asgata territory. Right. And I think that's one of those things that we find very understandable. Right, that it wasn't until somebody said things can be different that he knew things could be different. And so to see him switch, he didn't really switch allegiances so much as a new path became available to him and he took it. I think that's fair. That's what it feels like to me. I just wanted to mention it. Yeah, it's a good thing to talk about. So shall we talk about Sinclair and Raven? Oh, do we have to? (laughs) I'm afraid we do, because it's a major thing that happened in this episode. And why? I'm so sad about Sinclair. I feel like we should have seen it coming since we were talking about how great Sinclair was last week. (laughs) And he got even more great this episode, and then it was like, oh, no. (laughs) Because the show keeps doing this to me this season, where I'll have a week where I'm like really, really feeling a character like, man, I really love them. I'm I'm so glad that they did whatever. And then the next episode, they kill them. Mm -hmm. And I'm mad. Mm -hmm. I will say, for the record... Here and now, I don't often make predictions. My prediction for the continuation of the rest of this season, with the death of Sinclair, it was sort of sealed for me. When you get to this level of major character death, I realize Sinclair wasn't like a main main character, but he was a major character. I mean, he's been around since the first right first episodes. So. Right. So we have this massive list now of people who have died. Important people, whether they're important as integral to the story or important to the characters who love them who are integral to the story. Important people who have died. Between the death of Sinclair and the discussions that Monty has about his mom and getting her back and like if she's in the City of Light, I'm I'm calling it now. That is the major decision at the end of the season is this exploration of like what does it mean to be to still be alive? And if you're uploaded to the City of Light, are you still alive? And I think that's going to be the big... They're going to find some way to bring all these characters back. So you think they're going to keep the City of Light going at the end of the season? Or you think they're going to pull the plug? One of the two. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think that's going to be the big big question of the end of the season. They're going to be confronted with this decision to make. Are these people really alive? And if they are, of course, then you have, then how could you possibly destroy the place where they still exist, right? And of course, things are more complicated now since, and we'll talk about this later, but Polis getting taken over by everybody with the keys to the City of Light. Indeed. Which I also figured would happen, but. I'm just at this point where like, this entire season has, has been about death. That's been the major theme of the season. And I'm curious to see what they do at the end of it. Because weirdly, this show always said, we will never take death lightly. We'll never take character death lightly. And they've they've killed a lot of characters at this stage. So to me, the question is like, okay, if you're not taking this lightly, you must be going somewhere with all of this character death. But where? <laughs> but where is the question? Who knows? Anyway, that was my Sinclair was the final like nail in the coffin where I was like, this is going to become like a thing. Something is going to happen with all of this character death, because this is just like, like, we barely go an episode without another character dying at this stage. <laughs> it's go- it's ridiculous. Well, you notice at this point, all of the main characters in this group that we're following here, 
they've all lost somebody super important to them. Yep. <laughs> and I think they've all lost them, with the exception of Jasper, they've all lost them this season. Yep. So, what does that mean? I'm just saying, the list is getting long. So long. But I, I do appreciate, though, that, you know, Sinclair, with his dying breath, was like, Raven, get back in the in the rover. He just <sighs> wanted her to be safe. I know. But she just wanted to save him. I'm emotional about it. I was super emotional. I still am. Same. Sinclair being like a dad figure to Raven just like gets me in the heart every time. I'm just like, oh, he just, he wants to protect her. <laughs> I'm fairly certain I read at some point that Lindsay Morgan and Alessandro Giuliani had had a discussion about how maybe Sinclair was Raven's dad. Oh, that'd be cool. I think the I think the writers shot it down. <laughs> yeah. But I think they fair. were like headcanoning it for a while. That'd be rad. Yeah. I mean, he kind of he is, right? Maybe not like by blood or whatever. Oh, but... for sure he's like the father figure. Yeah. Whether or not he's biologically her father, who knows? But doesn't matter. <laughs> but let's talk about Raven. Man, how cool was Raven this episode? I, mean, I was just really excited by like A, I'm excited to have Raven back because I think we all missed her. Yes, Raven back and not overtly in pain. I mean, she's in pain, but her story is not about her pain in this episode. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. I really loved Raven and her big old brain. I think we said this last episode, we were like, Raven's gonna save the world with her brain. She totally is, though. And she totally is. It's great. I I loved, you know, she's reading Becca's journal and like figuring out stuff about about the flame and about Ali 2.0 and about Becca and just like really kind of bringing the the knowledge and then of course she brings the creepy concerning knowledge where she like can read the code in Becca's journal mm -hmm. which she apparently never learned I like Sinclair's line about you know and you're terrible at coding <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. she just seemed offended <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 and, yeah, and then he also has that line that, or maybe it was Monty, I can't remember who said it. One of them said, uh, anything else you remember that you were never taught? <laughs> I think that was Sinclair, yeah. I think it was Sinclair. So that's, I don't know, if, like, should we be concerned about that? That Raven has lingering knowledge, obviously, from Allie in her brain? Like, is that, where's that going to go? And what's that going to mean? And what else does she remember? I'm pretty sure, if anything, it's just going to be helpful. Yeah, I'm hoping it's it's helpful. You know, now that they've removed... Ally 1.0 from Raven. I I don't think there's cause for concern, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I I especially loved Raven's ending scene, by the way, where she decides to stay behind and she's like, "I can barely walk, my shoulders killing me," and but my brain is awesome as ever. I was like, "That's it's such a vintage Raven line." Like that's <laughs> it's just so good to have Raven back. I missed her. <laughs> her whole because I'm awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I love Raven so much. Like her, just the like cocky Raven attitude, man. It's good to have it back. She's like hugging people like Raven does. And yeah, love it. Yeah. Also, I'm not even remotely surprised that Raven leaned into the flame when the flame had its little tentacle wires out. Reckless Raven. It's like, that is a bad idea, Raven. <laughs> Raven is one of those people who's, like, real smart and has real bad ideas because of it sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Back to the whole too smart for her own good. Exactly. Yeah. So smart and so dumb. Like, don't do it, Raven. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Or maybe too curious for her own good would be yes. better yeah. phrasing. Yeah, exactly. Definitely too curious for her own good. Super excited by, like, hey, I wonder if I can make these things blow up, you know? <laughs> like, Raven. Of course she can. Of course she can. <laughs> but should she? Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it was good to have her back. I loved loved seeing that and loved seeing Lindsay Morgan smile again. Like for real smile, real Raven smile. Ah, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, good stuff. Relieving the stress. Indeed. So stressful. And now I'm gonna bring us down again, I'm sorry. But <sighs> Lincoln cause we finally get to mourn Lincoln, which I think that's another thing that's been going on a lot this season, right? Is they have a major character death, and then the next episode just kind of almost doesn't address it. Yeah. And it's weird. 
Yeah, that's that's another piece of the the sort of deferring resolution mm-hmm. on things, deferring that payoff. Because I mean, I feel like they're trying to go for a like giving the audience a breather, but it instead is just kind of prolonging our grief. I think. I don't know if it's giving the audience a breather. I think it's they're they're. I think what they're trying to do is give the impression of the story plowing forward so fast that there is no time to mourn. Well, but I mean, in 308, Lexa dies in 307, 308, we don't get any of that storyline. Yeah. I feel like that was, I think they actually said something about intending to give the audience a breather, right? Yeah. Yeah, I want to say maybe Jason Rothenberg said something about that in an interview. So that may be their intention. But if so, they've then they've. This sounds so rude, but then they fundamentally misunderstood what giving the audience a breather means. Like that's not. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the way you provide relief to your audience is to provide resolution. That's how storytelling works. Now, I will give you the the Lincoln death. I think that one was a matter of other stuff had to be going on because I think we did at least get Octavia and Octavia's. I don't know immediate response to Lincoln dying. But I'm trying to remember what episode... No, that was the episode after that, that she beat up Bellamy, right? Yeah, it was the episode after. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Yeah, again, it's 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 the weird... There's a weird, like, they're deferring payoff on a lot of stuff that... So they deferred payoff on actually mourning Lincoln quite a long time. And it felt like they they tried to use some of Octavia's, you know, what what she learned from Indra which is the the warrior doesn't mourn the dead until the war is over, right? Mm-hmm. So they tried to use some of that with Lincoln. So at least there was some thematic, there was some character-driven reasoning for why why we might delay this sort of mourning. But I think it's it's happened so much at this point that we're, we're having problems with, with the deferment of everything, right? You're like mm-hmm. kind of rushing the story forward. But your audience needs that resolution. They need that grief. They need that mourning. They need that payoff. And they did finally get some this episode, which I think was really, like, is good, but it's a bit bit late in coming. Yeah. But I'll take it, you know, at yeah. this point. Because yeah. there is something cathartic about seeing Octavia grieving Lincoln, you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. As absolutely. hard as it is to watch. As painful as it is. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of touch on some of that that scene in their room where she's going through Lincoln's stuff is that was a that was a powerful scene to me. Mm-hmm. And Maria Abderopoulos obviously is is so good as Octavia. Yes, that was a very powerful scene. I I loved the bit where Jasper says it's okay to fall apart a little. I kind of wish that had been more of his storyline. Right. I think we talked about this last episode too. If that had been more, if he had been sort of the person who can feel it all. And, and tries to encourage others to do it as well, right? That there could have been some good tension there between what Octavia is living as, you know, Indra's second and the person who's learned to defer grief and Jasper kind of being the opposite end of that and saying, you know, hey, you should be allowed to fall apart a little bit. I just, there could have been some really interesting, cool tension there. And we got it for about 30 seconds before Jasper got attacked by Emerson. Right. As is the way with this show. Yeah. But like if they had done that with Jasper earlier on in the season, you could have had him. I just I keep like I feel like Jasper had a lot more potential than what they gave him this season. Right. Although I did like that Jasper saying that to Octavia was echoing Octavia saying that to Jasper earlier in the season. So definitely. Yeah, that That was was kind of nice. It was a nice callback. Yeah. I'm just rewriting Jasper's storyline in my head. I don't know if our (laughs) podcast listeners want to listen to me rewrite Jasper's storyline. Because what if, what if that moment with Octavia early on in the season had been the turning point for him, where she says that to him, right? And he like kind of becomes this person who's like almost a grief counselor in some ways, right? That like he's been through this trauma and is learning to deal with it and tries to help other people deal with their trauma as traumas arise. And then there would be this moment again, but he would have built him to that moment where then he says this back to Octavia and you've come full circle. I'm just saying it would have been cool. (laughs) I agree. Anyway. <laughs> but anyway, I'm I'm glad that we did get the closure of the grounder death ritual of a funeral pyre for both Lincoln and Sinclair. And I'm so, so relieved that this is what we get to see for Lincoln for the last time. Cause yeah. 
having the image of him getting shot in the head and falling into the mud was not the way I wanted them to end Lincoln's storyline. That's so unacceptable. Agreed, on all counts. And I, I thought the pyre scene, to me, was a spectacular moment. These are the kinds of moments that I enjoy. Again, the, like getting back to some of the roots of the show that I've that I enjoy, right? Or these this idea of grief and dealing with grief and death having impact and meaning something. And the pyre scene really encapsulated a lot of that and had a lot of interesting character moments as well, because you get you get Raven saying, may we meet again, right? Which is their traditional farewell. Right. But then they're burning them in a pyre identical to the one that Finn and the, the dead from his massacre were burned on. And you get Octavia saying you can play stay on, right? Which is your fight is over. And then everybody echoing it, right? You so you get these elements of grounder rituals and sky crew rituals and the the sort of merging of those cultures. You right. get the moment the the moment with Bellamy, right, where it seems to really impact him that they're there's sort of a great like to me at least there were layers of him saying you can play stay on which are everything from like realizing that he was part of causing Lincoln's death to accepting that they are closer to the grounders than he thought and like kind of accepting some of that ritual into his life and the moments between him and Octavia seeing Octavia's grief and pain. Like there was a lot that happened in that pyre scene and that's the sort of stuff that, that to me made the show really, really enjoyable is when you bring all those things out with, there's such, you don't need a ton of dialogue. You just need these moments where the reality of everything that's happened comes crashing down. So I really, really enjoyed that. Yep. Shall we talk about the Polis storyline? Yeah. I'll start because I am vindicated. <laughs> I noticed that. I totally called this. <laughs> I knew. I said it, too. It's somewhere in one of our podcasts. When Amori comes back from like going after her brother and she comes back to Murphy, I said it. I said she seemed off. She seemed weird. And I wondered what was going to happen with that. And I was right. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we don't know when Amori got chipped. She got chipped right before that. I know it in my heart. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying, there's no definitive evidence of that. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I know you'll fight me on this. I'm I'm backing down. I'm just That's all right. being particularly nitpicky, as is my way. <laughs> You're right. We don't actually know, but I know, and I feel incredibly vindicated. <laughs> So yeah, to me, your head cannon will shoot me down. That's right. <laughs> My head cannon is armed and dangerous. <laughs> no, I did when she came back after all that. A, it seemed weird that she came back really quickly, and B, she felt a little off in that scene. And so it was, it was good to see that she was chipped. And I'm, I'm calling it now. That's when it happened. <laughs> but then I, I will say, and I, there's plenty to talk about in the Polis storyline. But my biggest thing in the Polis storyline is like. I feel like this, this, the, the shift from having like many various moving pieces and many dangers and like all the elements of like Pike. And even early in the season, we had Naya, we had Pike, we had Ali, we had a wide variety of dangers and struggles and all these moving pieces. And I feel like it really just did a giant left turn and suddenly Ali is the only danger all of a sudden. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily left turn, but. I mean, I, I agree with your sentiment, though, because, yeah, it started off, we were talking about the paralleling storylines of the errant group who then is trying to take power, and them being the extremists, and that pretty immediately got shut down on both sides. And, yeah, the the sort of minor, up until earlier the season, storyline of, of the City of Light, like, it was just kind of... It was there, but it was in the background, and suddenly it has just overtaken everything. Yeah. And it's like those other things just kind of disappeared. Mm -hmm. There was no... Well, it's all it's all been overwhelmed by Allie and right. Allie's mind control thing. There was like, there was no payoff. And that was, I don't know, it just felt, the whole thing felt roughly handled. To me. I, I thought the bringing together of all these storylines was going to be more elegant, I guess. And instead, it was just kind of like, nope, forget everything else. 
Allie's chipped everybody and Allie's the problem. Like Allie is an infection <laughs> that has spread exponentially. Yeah. Which I'm I'm not remotely surprised happened with Polis. Like I assumed that's what phase two was going to be. Well yeah. Uh, same. Yeah. <laughs> it was just the whole thing was I don't know. The whole the uh, It's pretty sudden. Honestly, the, it, it felt really abrupt to me and there and I I just maybe they will. I don't know. There's more episodes to come. But I wish they'd paid stuff off. I again, it was the like I don't often do this actually because I I don't like to second guess how people decide to tell a story, but I feel like there were better ways you could have told this story and still gotten the same kind of story, but it would have been a bit more elegant, right? Like there were other ways you could have gone if this was where you were going and instead it just feels like they kind of went well as soon as we kill off lexa and shift over to the arcadia storyline we're gonna just have the alley stuff take over rather than like even without like i would have loved to see pike get chipped right that would i'm like why didn't we have that that would have been cool (laughs) i would have loved to see pike get chipped i would have loved to see it would have been interesting to see if alley really did spread like an infection and started like nibbling away at some of the corners of the grounder sort of world, right? What if what if Naya got chipped or Rowan got chipped, right? Like to see those moments where I guess that's a callback to really enjoying the the political maneuverings of the early parts of the season and it all seems like it all just kind of went away. <laughs> mhm. Which bummed me out a little. Yeah. It is as we said, it's really sudden and I don't know why. I, I tried to not get too ahead of myself in making guesses or assumptions as to what's going to happen the rest of the season, but I think there's some element of the hundred that makes you sort of want to guess. <laughs> you know, like, oh, where's this going to go? And doing that this season has just not been a good idea. Because <laughs> yeah, stuff has really. been making sort of, I don't know, abrupt turns at various points. Yeah. I'm a bit disappointed, but... We'll see where it goes. Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be great. (laughs) Yeah. As always, waiting it out for the rest of the season. It's surprising to me that we've still got four episodes left. Yeah. Maybe I've just been watching too many shorter seasons of things, but. Well, and I think part of that is that everything happens so abruptly that it was like, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we're here, which is not anywhere we expected to be. And I don't know. It's. Everything happened really suddenly, and so now we're just like, okay, well, for the next four episodes, it's like a whole new story. It's a whole different story now. Yeah. And even the, like, the style of the episodes is different, right? They've done these kind of, they did two sort of, like, bottle episodes in a row. Right, the genre bingo. Yeah, they've did, yeah, exactly. They've done their two, their two genre bingo things, and, like... What's coming next week? Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? The structure's changed, and the, like, the, the, what the main story is has changed, Without really, I felt like they didn't really earn that. Like, it just kind of happened. <laughs> and we were like, oh, okay. We're all kind of, like, standing there looking around going, well, that's not what... <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. It was weird. It was a weird... It was a weird thing. However, Antari's terrifying. <laughs> Still. There's something unsettling about Antari. I will say this. I noticed some people online sort of talking about, like, what is up with Antari's clothes? Because they they seem to think that her clothes didn't fit her right. And I was thinking during the episode, like, some of the stuff didn't seem, it seemed kind of ill-fitting. Like, the shoulder guard, especially, to me, as she's walking around the market in Polis, it seems like it's almost sliding off of her shoulder. And I keep thinking, like, is it intentional, do we think? Because, you know, she's like a kid playing dress-up. Because... She's not actually the commander. I think it's entirely intentional. I think we're meant to not take her seriously. And costume is one of the ways you do that. Right. Like you said, like a kid playing dress up. You know, we we don't take her seriously because she's not. She doesn't have that thing that a leader should have. I mean, all the clothes kind of look like they're almost too big for her or something. Yeah. She looks like she's being swallowed up by her clothes. The other question is, like, is she wearing Lexa's clothes? Because she's a lot smaller than Lexa. Right. <laughs> so like they probably haven't had time to have that stuff altered you know what i mean <laughs> right like she's literally in someone else's clothes anyway literally playing dress up yeah <laughs> so since we're talking about clothes let's talk about um about clark in the grounder gear because it's working for her man 
when they come into town, when they come into Arcadia, Clark and her like, she's like a grounder cowboy. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Her big old duster and like, oh, that's some good outfitting they did on her. (laughs) She looks more suited to be commander than Antari does. She does, which she is in her own way, I suppose. One Hedda. Right. That's true. I mean, Titus put her in commander's, like, old commander's clothes, so. He did. He did. It's good stuff. (laughs) Have we mentioned that we really like Clark and Eliza Taylor? Because we do. (laughs) Both. We love both Clark and Eliza Taylor. And you're never going to change that. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to Polis a little bit, I thought it was fascinating watching Amori's reaction to the temple. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we had that period of time where we were like talking about I maybe maybe other people weren't I was talking about Titus and like the Flame Keepers as like this secret order of monks <laughs> who are like AI hunters. That's not exactly what it turned out to be, unfortunately. But uh, it seemed like a lot of we did talk at one point about did Alley 2.0 intentionally sort of cloak everything in sort of myth and legend and and destroy references to. Th- to the fact that Ali 2.0, that she exists, you know? I mean, logically, she would have. Right. So you get, I got this sense, at least when you get Amori, who, who is chipped, walking through the temple, right, asking about, asking about all of, all of the things, right? This is the first time she's seeing it, and it, to me, at least, it gives us an interesting glimpse into this idea of the Flamekeepers, like, part of their job, probably, is to keep this stuff mysterious, because otherwise, Ali 1 would find out. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought that was a really interesting. Like, clearly, Ali one didn't know about any of this stuff. And so that was a really cool moment of like, oh. Right. Like, how much did they intentionally obfuscate what was happening here? Yeah. If nothing else, like, go back and rewatch that scene, because that scene is more interesting when you know for sure that Amori's chipped. Yeah. Because it's yeah. like, oh, all of this makes way more sense now. Because she's, oh, I recognize this. And even the way she says it sounds a little bit like Allie when you yeah. go back. And it's like, oh, how did I not know for sure before? <laughs> it's the moment where Murphy says they call her Becca Promheta. And she says, Becca. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. So let's talk about the other random thoughts that we had about this episode. I thought it was really interesting when Monty is asking about the brain pathways in the rover. And he says, so my mom might still be alive. And Raven says, that depends on your definition of alive. Yeah. And I think that ties into like this season being about death. And what is what does that mean? The groundwork was laid in season two and then continued in season three. Death is not the end. There's a lot of stuff happening around death and what is, you know, there is no death in the City of Light and what does that mean and are you really alive or, and are you really you and can you be you and like, I don't, that that whole thing to me I think is going to blow up at the end of the season. I think right. that's the going to be the big, the big thing. I agree. I mean, they did set it up really well in this episode that that's going to be sort of the, the moral quandary of the season. Yeah. Because there's always a moral quandary in this show. Definitely. It's, it's it's some interesting stuff. It should be, I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. But yeah, they've set up this whole dueling AI thing, which just makes me think about person of interest. Hmm. Which is coming back soon, and you should watch it. <laughs> Everybody should watch person of interest. Like a long time ago, I wrote this thing <laughs> about the idea of what if... The hundred is like a hundred years after the apocalypse with Samaritan and the machine. So like, what if they actually did have a war? And then <laughs> the hundred is the story that comes after. <laughs> hmm. And people yelled at me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously that's not what happened because now we know the history of Ali and Becca and that whole thing. But I'm just saying, what if Ali is a descendant of the machine or Samaritan. I'm just saying. That's true, because the apocalypse in the 100 universe comes, what, 35 years or so from now? So, See? It's about right. Could be. (laughs) Anyway. Anyhow. Also, I just wanted to mention that Alessandro Giuliani tweeted, and it amused me, 
Mr. Satcho, the ethnically ambiguous tech exposition torch is yours. Long may it burn in your elegant hands. <laughs> and I will put the link to that tweet in our show notes because it amused me so very much. That's such a good tweet. <laughs> <sighs> uh, I will miss Alessandro Giuliani. I will as well, unless they bring him back. I'm just saying. <laughs> I hope so. He was so, never chipped, but... though. He was never chipped, so then that doesn't oh, seem yeah. an option. But... Damn it. Damn it, Dawson. <laughs> I know. What if they can bring everyone back, though? What if, like, I'm just saying, this whole season seems to be about killing off major characters. And, like, what if they bring them all back somehow? I don't know. But they've killed off major characters in every season. I feel like the number is much higher this season. Though. Oh, the number is higher this season. I'm just saying maybe some of them could be permanent. Yeah, very, very true. Very true. I I need to stop making myself sad. I mean, the thing is, like, a lot of the people they've killed off were not chipped. Right. right. So seems like you wouldn't be able to bring those people back. I don't know. Should be interesting. I think it's just been Lexa and Hannah who were chipped, right? Yes. And Hannah's the worst, so. <laughs> yeah, it would be Lexa and Hannah who were chipped. Yeah, because I guess no one else was. I don't know, man. I'm just saying. I wonder. I wonder what's going to happen with all of that. Although one of the things they said about this show for a long time was, when people are dead in our show, they're dead. We're not that kind of sci-fi show. Right. Back when everyone was like, bring Anya back. <laughs> but that was before digital reincarnation became the theme of the show. <laughs> Very true. They said that, but now digital reincarnation is the theme of the show. So, like, how do you reconcile those two things? I don't know. By probably doing what you were talking about earlier and making the moral quandary, like, what do you do yeah. when these people still live on digitally, but not physically? Are they really alive? Are they really themselves? Is it really, is it really them? Who knows? I don't know. It'll be interesting. We'll see where it goes. If you have thoughts about this episode that you'd like to share with us, you can do that in a number of ways. You can send us an email at feedback at askgenretv.com. You can record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. You can call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We're on Twitter at AskGenreTV. Show notes for this episode will be available at askgenretv.com slash fan12. Finalysis is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. We've got podcasts for Killjoys and Orphan Black and Lost Girl and a few other things over at AskGenreTV.com. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris. And I'm Dawson. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>